Well, friends, we continue our study then of the Heidelberg Catechism this evening. And we've come to question 33. Uh, Before we read question 33, let me just draw your attention to that box inset there on the right. Because remember, at this point in the Catechism, we're making our way through the Apostles' Creed, that form of sound words. Remember that? The form of sound words. Uh, Paul speaks about the form of sound words. Now, he's not referring to the Apostles' Creed, of course, right? But still, the Apostles' Creed is for us. That form of sound words, which then constitutes a summary of what we believe in. The faith that we believe has content. It has an object. Now, you could say uh, that the object of our faith is Christ. But remember, we talked about that. Which Christ? What does that mean that you believe in Jesus? Well, the Apostles' Creed gives us a summary of what that means to believe in Jesus Christ. And we have, you know, you thought we were moving slowly through Genesis. Look at how slowly we're moving through the Apostles' Creed. We, we had a sermon on Jesus. Then we had, I believe, two sermons on Christ. And now we have a sermon on His only begotten Son. So the, uh, the instructor in the Heidelberg Catechism also believes in moving slowly through through different documents. But piece by piece, he's, he's taking apart this creed and explaining it to us. So we come tonight then to this, to this expression. What does it mean when we say we believe in his only begotten son? So now you can jump up to question 33 there. And the question is given us in our catechism. Why is he, that is Jesus, called God's only begotten son? When we also are God's children... And the answer given us is because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace for the sake of Christ. So, this is the catechism that is given to us, the teaching that is given to us this evening. And you know that we're, we're working our way through here the names and the titles of Christ, because that's how we learn about Jesus. We can learn about Jesus in a variety of different ways. But one of the ways is we study his names, because his names have significance. And the name of Jesus is Jesus, right? Which we saw means Savior. And then we consider the title of Jesus, which is Christ, anointed, or Messiah. And now we come to another name that we're given, Son, and specifically Son of God. So let's first look then at what this means when the Bible calls something a son of. Because this is a very biblical expression. It's a very biblical expression. It was a very common expression, especially in the Hebrew Bible. Unfortunately, you often miss this because in the translation, the translators will often just uh, use an English expression because it doesn't make quite as much sense to us. Let me give you an example. You can see the first verse I've given you there is Genesis 17, verse 12. In the Hebrew, it would say, and every male among you who is a son of eight days, you see that? Who is a son of eight days old shall be circumcised. Well, our English translations, uh, almost all of them, smooth that out, right? And just say, who is eight days old. But in the Hebrew, it's very clearly, who is a son of eight days old. Exodus 12, verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a son of one year. 
Genesis 35, verse 18, now a slightly different meaning to to this idea of being a son of, but this is the story of Rachel. She gave birth to a son, and then we read in Genesis 35, 18, and it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni. Now, the, the, the word Ben in Hebrew is son. The word Ben means son. And On means affliction, and E means my. So, Ben-Oni means son of my affliction. So again, you could see, just as a, a son of eight days old means that there's a connection between the eight days old and the, the male, every male among you. The son of language means that there's a connection there, sometimes an equivalency, right? A son of eight days is a person that is eight days old. And Rachel named Benjamin, she named him first Ben-Oni, son of my affliction, because he was the son that was born with so much pain and so much agony, and Rachel died from that childbirth. And then you'll notice that her father, I'm sorry, his father, called him Ben-Yamin, Benjamin. Ben, again, son, and Yamin, of my right hand. So Jacob calls him son of my right hand, or in English we would say my right-hand man, right? Jacob envisioned this son being his right-hand man. Not son of my affliction, as Rachel had named him, but son of my right hand. He would be close to me. He would be my helper, my assistant, all through life. Son of my right hand. Then in 2 Kings 6, verse 32, we see another use of this language. Because here Elisha says to the elders, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? In other words, a son of a murderer is a murderer. And Job 28, verse 8, the proud beasts have not trodden it. The sons of pride, it says in the Hebrew. The sons of pride have not trodden it. In other words, these beasts are proud beasts. They're sons of pride. So that's very common in the Hebrew language to speak that way and to use that expression, the son of. Now, when we come in the second place to this expression, what does it mean then to be called a son of God? A son of God. And again, I give you a number of verses here to show you that this expression is used in many, often to speak about the children of Israel. In Exodus 4, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. In other words, God is the one who has, who has redeemed Israel, brought them out of Egypt, and now God uses that language, which of course is easy for us to follow, right? That Israel is my firstborn son. He is a son of God. I redeemed him. I brought him out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery and the house of bondage. In Jeremiah 31, with weeping they shall come. And by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Same language there. And in Hosea, I believe, uh, ladies, in your Bible study, you're working through the book of Hosea, so this will be familiar to you. And it will come about that in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, 
it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. So there again you have that language, to be a son of the living God, means to be one of his children, means to be adopted into his family, and it means that there is a connection between the person and God. To be a son of God means that you are his. You are you belong to him. Well then let's move in the third place then to what does it mean when we talk about Jesus being the Son of God? Because you'll notice that our catechism is is pointing out this connection that we are called the sons of God. That all believers are called the sons of God, and yet Jesus is the Son of God. Is it really the case that that we're sons of God, just like Jesus is the Son of God? That doesn't seem right. It seems that Jesus would be the Son of God in a way that we are not. That's what the Catechism is is kind of picking up on, you might say. Well, we notice that in Mark 1 and verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, from that verse, it doesn't really help us in terms of understanding, well, in what way is Jesus the Son of God? And how are we the Son of God? It just states that he's the Son of God. However, when we come to the book of John, and I did not put these texts, or at least I didn't spell them out for you, so you may want to turn there with me. But in John 1 and verse 14, in John 1 and verse 14, very familiar words to us, we read, And the Word became flesh, And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, what's the difference there, dear friends, between what we read in John 1, verse 14, and what we read in Mark 1, verse 1? Jesus is the Son of God, but there's something a little, there was something added there. Did you miss it? In John 1, verse 14, we saw his glory as of the only begotten. And those are the key words. The only begotten from the Father. We might say the only born son of the Father. Now this language continues in verse 18. If you drop down to verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. And there we read the same language, the only begotten God, now referring to Jesus there, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he, that is Jesus, has explained him. The only begotten, the only born. And then the most familiar verse of all, when we come to John 3 and verse 16, John 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave And here it is again, his only begotten Son. And in John 3 and verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then again in 1 John 1, 4 and verse 9, we have that same adjective now that we're used to seeing put in front of Jesus in 1 John 4 and verse 9. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent 
his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, what is the significance of this, dear friends? So, believers are called sons of God. We saw in Psalm 82 that even kings are called sons of God. Not because they are saved, but because they have authority. That's like God. So in that sense, they're sons of God. Believers are sons of God. But only Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And that means to us, my friends, that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. There is something unique about His relation to God that is different than our relation to God. Now, who can explain how Jesus is the Son of God? No one can. So God has, you may say, stooped down to our level and given us this this language which brings up a, a picture that we can understand. And that picture that Jesus is the natural Son of God and that we are the adopted sons of God. That is the picture that God gives us. And only Jesus is the only born or the only begotten Son of God. Now this is what we see also in our text in John 10. Because in John 10, we have, we have uh, Jesus stirring, or not stirring up. Well, he does stir up their wrath. I don't know that he intended to do that. But he makes these stupendous claims that bring down upon him the wrath of the Jewish people. Look then with me at John 10. So here is Jesus speaking to the, to the Jewish people. And in verse 24... John 10 and verse 24, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Uh, To put it in in our language, uh, they, they believe that Jesus is beating around the bush. Jesus, give us a yes or no. Are you the Messiah or not? Give us clarity. And Jesus responds very clearly by putting his finger on the real problem. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. In other words, your problem is not my lack of clarity, but your unbelief. That's the problem. I've been as clear as I need to be, but you will not believe. There is a a matter of the will here, isn't there? Your will is bent against me. He goes on in verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, my friends, This is astounding language to use with the Jewish people because the Jewish people saw themselves as the elect of God. They, as a nation, were the elect of God. But now Jesus says, you're not of my sheep. You're not of my elect people. And that's why you don't believe. You can imagine how the Jewish people must have been incensed when they heard Jesus denouncing their privilege as the people of God. But Jesus said, no, there is an elect people. But it runs through the Jewish nation. It is not equivalent with the Jewish nation. You are not of my sheep. And verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And Jesus continues to speak about his sheep. In verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, look closely with me here. Notice how Jesus has ended in verse 28. At the very end of verse 28, 
Jesus says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you see that? No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now in verse 29, Jesus says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And you might say to yourself, well, whose hand are they in? Are they in Jesus' hand or are they in the Father's hand? And then, my friends, comes the statement that you might say it blew everything. I don't know what expression to use. Let me just read it. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. My friends, it is difficult to put into words the thunderclap that that must have been to the Jewish people to hear. The the presumption of a mere man to say, I and the Father are one. Is it possible? And a Jewish man for all that to say, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. Oh, I and the Father are one. It's one hand. We know how incensed the Jews were at that because we can read verse 31. They did not arrest Jesus. They did not take him to a trial, which was required by law. No, they just picked up stones to stone him. Right then and there, we've heard enough. Jesus has claimed to be divine. We don't need any other proof. We don't need a trial. You're going to die right here and now. The Jews were incensed. Their anger flared up at this rank blasphemy that Jesus has just uttered. But Jesus goes on, and he says, I've done all these miracles. And of course, these miracles, if you would back up to verse 25, let me say something about the miracles of Christ and what their, what their real function was. Look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. But then notice Jesus says, the works or the miracles that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Of course it would be incredible blasphemy for a mere human to claim to be I and the Father are one. But Jesus says, look at these miracles that I have done. They preach. They testify about who I am. That when I claim that my Father's hand and my hand are one, That's not just an empty, presumptuous claim that I'm making like some wild, hysterical person would say. No, these miracles, they testify that the claims that I'm making are true. And so the Jews pick up stones to stone him. And Jesus, again, in verse 37, in verse 37, he says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. In other words, if I haven't done these miracles, then don't believe me. But if I do them, and everybody knew that he did them, he did not do them in a corner or privately. They were done publicly. Everybody could see them. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. And then that's enough, isn't it? Verse 39, therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Well, my friends, here is the the stupendous statement of Jesus. That I and the Father are one. That yes, we can be called sons of God. 
I put that verse in the notes there from Romans 8. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, which is just the word Father in Aramaic. Abba, or Father, Father. Romans 8, verse 15. So, yes, we are called sons of God. But Jesus is also the Son of God, but in an entirely unique category. He is uniquely the Son of God because he is one with God. I and the Father are one. None, no believer can say that. We would say that, yes, we are, we are born again by the power of the Spirit of God and that we, are, we call God our Father because we are his adopted children for Christ's sake. But Jesus is the only begotten Son. I and the Father are one. Or in another word, to use other words, what Jesus says in verse 38, the Father is in me and I in the Father. So that is the truth then that our catechism has given us, isn't it? Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, or the only begotten Son of God. We, however, we are also the sons of God, but we are adopted children of God, adopted by grace for the sake of Christ. Well, my friends, let me bring these points of application in conclusion of this sermon. The deity of Jesus or the divinity of Jesus, Jesus being God, and our faith. And I put that question there, is he reliable? Because, my friends, faith is trust. And we trust in things that are reliable. We put our money in a bank that we trust. We trust a person who is trustworthy. If they give us their word, we trust them. I just had it just just uh, last week. A man was talking and he was telling me something. I didn't believe him. I don't trust him. I, I, I've had past experience. There's nobody in this church. Don't worry. It's a person that I, I didn't. I don't. He's a good man, but I just didn't trust his word. He tends to overspeak things. I, I didn't see him as trustworthy on that particular point. But I ask you this evening: Is Jesus trustworthy? Is he reliable? And I ask that question against the backdrop of what we considered this evening, that he is the Son of God and the only begotten Son of God. Is Jesus reliable? Is he capable? Is he competent, my friends? We hire people to do work, and we pay them only if we trust that they'll actually do the work and do it well. I ask you again, is Jesus competent? Is he capable of saving your soul? You have entrusted yourself to Jesus if you're a Christian this evening. And when we get to that last day and we stand before the throne of God and we know that there is enough sin in our life that God could justly send us to hell forever. forever. But we look to Jesus and we trust. We have faith in His saving work, in His death and resurrection. And we trust. We trust that that will be sufficient. And tonight we learn that the one in whom we trust is the very Son of God. He says, I and the Father are one. And the Father is our judge. The Father is the one who will judge us on the last day. 
And Christ is our Savior. We also talk about the judgment seat of Christ, don't we? But God will be our judge. And we trust to Jesus. I ask you this evening, based on what we learned, is Jesus reliable? I remember from a previous catechism that we considered, this was question 26 in the catechism. It was the the question about God the Father. And at the end of that question, it said this. At the end of question 26, this is on page 16 if, if you want to read. But at any rate, in Lord's Day 9, question 26, at the second paragraph, it says, I trust him, that is the Father. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. And he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. And my friends, those words came back to me when I was thinking about this sermon. Because I ask you, we already confessed that we trust God the Father because he is able, because he is almighty God. That's why we trust him, because he is God. And now, my friends, I can present to your faith this evening, Jesus, that he also is God. I and the Father are one. And so, my friends, I can say that just as you've believed in God the Father and entrusted yourself to him because he is capable to do it because he is God, that in the same way you can entrust yourself to Jesus, the Son of God, because he also is God and is capable of holding you and is capable of saving you because he is almighty God. Didn't Jesus say, you believe in the Father, believe also in me. That's the truth of the gospel this evening. Jesus is capable. And so, my friends, I present to you in that first point of application the deity of Jesus and our faith, that the object of our faith is solid, it is reliable. It's why the hymn writer wrote, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Right? You can, you can, you can place yourself on that rock and never be moved. All the storms of life cannot make that rock shake or waver. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And the second point, my friends, the deity of Jesus and our religion. Sometimes you will hear people ask, often young people will ask the question, how do you know the Christian religion is true? There are many people, there are many religions, they all claim to be true. Why do you believe the Christian religion to be true? Now, I know this question comes up in your minds. This question comes up in everyone's mind at some point in their life. Everybody thinks they have the truth. Every Mohammedan is sincere and zealous in their belief that their religion is true. And the Jewish people believe that their religion is true. What makes us so so certain that the Christian religion is true? Isn't this something of what the Jews were saying? The Jews came to Jesus and they said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? Give us a yes or no answer. Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Well, my friends, I would address that question in the same way. We believe in the Christian religion because we believe Jesus. We believe that there was a man, a flesh and blood man, who came to this earth many years ago 
And he, he taught us the truth of the Christian religion. And this teacher, this rabbi, was God himself. And God cannot lie. And that's why we know his religion is true. And if you say, why do you believe in Jesus? My friends, because Jesus did the miracles which testify to us that he is who he says he is. Jesus did the miracles and those miracles testify, they preach. This man is who he says, is, who he, says he is. Remember the, the, uh, the dilemma that C.S. Lewis presents to us in, in his book, uh, in one of his books, I'm not sure which one it is, I believe it's Mere Christianity, in which he says that either, and I speak this reverently, I hate to say these words, but he says either Jesus is a madman, right? Either Jesus is, 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 a, is, is, a, is a hysterical man who's, who's crazy, right? Claiming to be God. That's the one option. Or he is who he says he is. There's no real middle ground there. You can't really say, well, you know, we respect Jesus. We like what he taught. And, and we respect his ethics. And all the wonderful things he did. That love one another, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What a great principle that is. We love Jesus. But we don't really believe that he was God. This was Ben Franklin's religion, right? This was Ben Franklin's idea of Jesus. That he was a good man, a good teacher. But he wasn't really divine. He wasn't God. But my friend C.S. Lewis explodes that idea very effectively. That you can't respect a person who claims to be God and isn't. That is a person that we, we admit to a, to a psychiatric ward. He's, he's a mental case. So either Jesus is who he says he is, or he's the farthest thing from someone we would respect. And so this is the truth of the Christian religion. We believe Christianity is true because we believe Jesus is true. And that there really was a man who taught us the Christian religion, and he did miracles to prove himself to be who he says he was. His miracles, you might say, are the credentials which authenticate and which verify his message. These works testify about me, that I am from my Father. And my friends, I think that in our, in our evangelistic work and in the apologetic discussions we have with other people, I think you need to bring it to this point. Do you believe Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who was he? What did he teach? Do you believe him? Was he speaking the truth? I think that this is really, the person of Jesus is really the question of the ages. It's the question that all history turns on. Either you're for him or you're against him. Either you believe him or you don't. Now, some of you might say, well, isn't it kind of difficult to prove that Jesus really did all these miracles? Well, that can be difficult. But there I would say, my friends, start with the resurrection itself. The resurrection itself, uh, even putting aside Scripture as a revelation from God, just the historical fact of the, rev of the resurrection is not so difficult to prove. So I, when we talk about the deity of Jesus and our religion, we talk about Jesus' word, his claim to be God, and his miracles which authenticate that claim. And upon this, we believe the truth of the Christian religion. And this we can bring and we can argue with anyone who is willing. Who was Jesus is the question that lies at the, 
at the heart of the Christian religion and, and as we try to verify its truth. Who is Jesus? He claimed so many things. Do you believe him? I believe him. Do you believe him? I know that you do. And this is something that we need to, to use in an apologetic way to prove the truth of the Christian religion. My third point, my friends, the deity of Jesus and our anxiety. Now, we had an election this week. And I suspect that if uh, you're like me, you, that the election didn't go your way. You're probably not pleased with the results. And it is sad. It is horrifying, my friends, to think of what has now been codified in the law of our state. It is sad. It, it gives us heavy hearts. And that's appropriate. It does make us anxious about the future. And how do we face these times? How do we wake up on, on Wednesday morning and the, the truth dawned upon us of what has just taken place in our nation and in our state? Let me ask you this, my friends. Are you first an American or a Christian? Are you first a citizen of this country or a citizen of the kingdom of God? I know it's not Wednesday morning, but you can think about that as we woke up on Wednesday morning. Am I a citizen of America or am I a citizen of the kingdom of God? Now, I know it's both. We are citizens of this nation. But let's remember, my friends, that in the first place, in the first place, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. This is not our home. We are pilgrims. We are strangers passing through a strange land. In that sense, I kind of think of it this way. Many of us will look at the elections, the political process taking place, say, in Germany, or in Italy, or in Greece. And we look, and yeah, we take some interest in it, but it doesn't really pertain to us, does it? And in a similar way, my friends, the political process in this country is a country that you are not in the first place a part of, a citizen of. And whatever's taking place there, by the way, flip it. Let's suppose that the election went all our way. Let's suppose that all these elections were won. We, we had the, uh, our candidates won and, and the Proposition 3 was defeated and we were delighted and, and, and we were rejoicing. Nothing that I say changes right now, my friends. Nothing that I say except that if the election had gone our way, I suspect many more of us would be here thinking that maybe I'm first an American and second a Christian. But no matter which way the election goes, no matter which way the political process pans out in this country, my friends, the truth of the word of God is I am first a citizen of the kingdom of God. And if election doesn't go our way, and that's what it takes to bring this truth front and center before us, I hesitate to say, my friends, it may be a... a, a, Well, that part of it might be a good thing. To make us realize our pilgrim status in this world... This nation owes us nothing, my friends. This world owes us nothing. Suffering is the normal, expected lot of the people of God in this world. And we can be thankful that we don't have to suffer as much as most of the children of God do now and in the past. And so, my friends, I think this is the way, the way to approach these things is to think of ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God. I labor for a different master. Yes, 
Our master has told us to submit to the governing authorities, whoever they may be. We have to do that. And we have to respect them and we have to pray for them. And we do. But in the first place, I march to the beat of a different drummer. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. And my master is the only begotten son of God. He is my king. My friends, maybe it's time to turn off the talk shows. Maybe it's time to turn off the podcasts. Maybe it's time to get off YouTube. Maybe it's time to stop looking for a silver lining in this election. Was there any election that we won? Maybe it's time to turn that stuff off. Now, I know that we need to make reasonable efforts to be informed and to vote and to work for political change in this country. Reasonable efforts. Maybe I can make this deal with you, my friends. I'll work as hard for political reform in this country as Jesus did in Israel and as Paul did in the Roman Empire. Can we agree to that? Is it the case, possibly the case, my friends, that some of you are so consumed with politics that it's wrecking your life? I have an example for you. This is one headline right when I was writing this sermon. This is an actual headline that came up on my computer screen. And I had to smile and I had to include this in the sermon. Here's the headline. It says, A nuclear attack on the U.S. would most likely target one of six cities. Simulated images show how a Hiroshima, the Japanese city Hiroshima-like explosion would affect each. Now, I know what I'm supposed to do, right? I'm supposed to click on that, and I'm supposed to look at each of those cities, and I'm supposed to watch this dreadful, and, and, and no doubt that the, 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 the whatever news organization this was will have beautiful pictures of massive bombs exploding and the city being wiped out. And then I'm supposed to go home and to be eat up with anxiety and to be dreadfully depressed for the rest of the day because one of the cities, I, I didn't click on it. I have no idea what the six cities are. But maybe one of them was Detroit. I don't know. And so now I'm supposed to live in terror, right? That there's going to be a nuclear explosion. And, and they even give me pictures of what it will look like. My friends, that is, that is just given us to, to induce anxiety in us and to make us live depressed and miserable lives. Don't immerse yourself in that. That's why I say sometimes you turn off the political talking heads. That They seem like they're going all day long in some people's houses. Turn it off. Maybe it's time to back away from politics a little bit. There's something so much more ennobling that you can be a part of. Why not listen to one of the Christian biographies that are made available to us, even freely available to us? I'm going to give you an example of that as well. Compare this story that I'm going to tell you now to the story I just told you about the six cities going up in a nuclear explosion. This is a biography I was reading or listening to recently of Mary Slessor. I don't know if you've heard her or not. She was a Scottish missionary to Nigeria. Mary Slessor. Well, Mary Slessor was working in Nigeria in a tribe. And she heard a, a, in the tribe, she was in her home, and she heard a lot of hullabaloo, and, and people were yelling and carrying on. And so she came out of her uh, hut to see what was going on. And she saw a gathering. And she went to this gathering. She looked around. She kind of elbowed her way through to see what was going on. And in the center of that gathering was a fire. And on that fire was a pot of boiling oil. And laying, on the, laying before that fire was a woman, naked, completely naked. And there was a man dancing around her with a, with a jaguar um, 
uh, fur. You know, they cut off the skin of a jaguar, and she was wearing that. He was wearing that, and he was dancing and yelling and hollering and carrying on. And Mary came out, and she knew immediately what was about to happen. These these uh, these natives were about to dump that boiling oil over this woman. And again, it may have been for for something, nothing more serious than that somebody had gotten sick. And the witch doctor of the tribe had pronounced that it was this woman's fault. And so they stripped her naked and were now preparing to ladle hot oil over her body. And Mary Slesser, without even thinking of what she was doing, elbowed her way through the crowd, pushed her way, and she stood between this naked woman and this man with the boiling oil. She stood between him. And this man approached her. Now you can imagine I'm listening to this in my car and Here comes this man with this jaguar skin covering him and with this weapon in his hand and Mary Slesser standing between this woman and standing between this man and the whole crowd quiet now you can imagine and watching this scene unfold. And the the, the end of the story is that as he approached, this man finally backed down and Mary never flinched. She stood firm and she never flinched and finally this man turned around and left, and the whole crowd saw that the, the, the religion of the witch doctor had bowed before the religion of the Son of God. And now, my friends, which do you think I should reflect on? The six cities going up in a nuclear explosion? Or Mary Slesser, with her faith in the Son of God, standing firm before a false pagan religion, and carrying the day, and coming off victorious? My friends, I went home blessed. I went home encouraged. I went home resolved to do like Mary Slesser did, to stand strong for the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And that's why I I encourage you this evening, my friends, that it's time to turn off the radio. It's It's time to turn off the podcast or whatever it might be that's filling your minds with these six cities that are about to go up in a nuclear explosion. And by the way, I'm not saying that's necessarily false. I'm just saying there comes a time when you've got to lay it aside and stop thinking about it and turn to something that will encourage you and something that is true and ennobling and beautiful, like the faith, for instance, of Mary Slesser standing in this Nigerian tribe, standing strong for the only begotten Son of God. How much better it would be if we would fill our minds with this than the other. So, my friends, the deity of Jesus and our anxiety, let us Let us sit at the feet of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our teacher, our leader, and our Savior. And let that anxiety of the political situation, let the other people bear that. We have something higher, bigger, and better to fix our eyes upon. And to the Son of God, my friends, I direct your attention this evening and pray that you find in him so much peace. So much joy, even as the world crumbles around us, apparently. We put our trust in him. And we find a rock that can never be shaken. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you in this evening hour. So thankful that we have this rock that we can stand on. This only begotten Son of God. He is our King. You have set him upon your holy hill. And to this hill we come. And we bow and we worship. And Lord, we know that whatever a nuclear threat there may be to this city or to that city, that yet you are established upon your hill, that you are the supreme king 
over all creation, that all the nations of this earth are as dust in the balances to you. This is our God and this is our King. Lord, we come before you to worship you and to give you our allegiance and to say, Lord, help us to be faithful in this fallen, dark world in which we live. Lord, we are disappointed with what our state has recently codified into law. But we pray, O God, that we would continue to remain faithful and to know that we are pilgrims going to a city and that Jesus Christ is our King and He is the Son of God. And we're thankful for His miracles, Lord, which authenticate His word and teach us and testify to us that He is the Son of God indeed. Lord, please remember us and bless us then this hour. Give us a good time of fellowship after the service. And bless and keep us, Lord, in your name. Amen. Let's turn in our blue hymnal to number three. And let's just sing the first two verses. Wherefore do the nations rage? And what follows in verses 1 and 2 of number 3 in the blue hymnal.